Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, with war raging in Israel, we'll hear about the challenges of providing aid to communities who were attacked. Suddenly, the helpers and the responders became the victims. And the sense of vulnerability. The first responders, who are the ones who are protecting their citizens from the terrorists, is them who were killed. We'll also look at the challenges with our youth. We've raised a generation that they don't have a, a moral compass. And the lessons of history. How did it happen that the most educated nation in the world in the 1930s produced the Third Reich? Everybody followed their university model, and we're seeing the same thing play out today. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of the Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday throughout Los Angeles and San Diego areas in Southern California, and available wherever you are in the nation via live stream at kkla.com and also through the KKLA app available for Apple and Android devices. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. Take a moment to follow The Christian Outlook on X, formerly Twitter, at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Israel, where the war against Hamas continues, where some 240 Israelis continue to be held hostage. The International Fellowship of Christians and Jews is on the ground there seeking to help. Yael Eckstein, the president of the fellowship, was a guest on my program. Tell us about the fellowship and the work that you do in general, and then I want to talk about, you know, after that, the work that's going on right now, obviously. So what does uh, this fellowship do? Well, everything that the fellowship does is rooted in the Bible. We are the largest philanthropic organization in Israel, representing millions of Christians around the world. And the programs that we have on the ground are based on three different areas. One is Aliyah, which is bringing the Jewish people home from all four corners of the earth. We're focused mostly on the former Soviet Union, so Ukraine, different Arab countries, so non-Western countries that we're bringing Jews home from, just as Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied. 2,000 years ago, and it's Christians that are making this possible, which is so inspiring and and moving. Um, The second program that we have is for poverty, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, to focus on the elderly and the orphans, just as the Bible outlines. And the third is the area of security, to be the watchman on the wall. The guardian of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Comfort, comfort my people. That all these three different areas of programming are based on God's directive of where we are called, what charity is, what a fast is, and uh, we are uh, consumed by that work day and night. Mm. You know, when this crisis happened uh, after the terrorist attack, and we've been talking about it pretty regularly on our show, you know, one of the things that I think 
even for myself and for many of us became aware of is how ignorant we really are about Israel, about what's happening inside the country, what the country is like, what the current situation is for Jews around the world, uh, even before, obviously, this terrorist attack. And you're right in the middle of it. What would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions that the world has um, about Israel and the work that you're doing? Well, I think that people say this beautiful tagline of free Gaza or free the Palestinians. And I don't think that they realize that what the Palestinians and the innocent civilians and what Gaza needs to be freed from, if you care about civilians, is from Hamas terror organization who's currently reigning over them with horror, terror, and death. Tell me about what it was like when this attack happened on October 7th. Uh, Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine that day from your perspective. It changed this country probably forever in ways that we still don't fully realize because yeah. we're we're still in it. As we're having this interview, I'm still listening with one ear for the code red siren that I'll have exactly 60 seconds to go down into my bomb shelter. And there have been quite a few meetings that I started off Zoom meetings with 15 people. And at some points, there was only one or two people on because everyone else had to be in their bomb shelters. So that's the reality right now. But, but the time that it changed was on October 7th on Saturday, that we heard about the attacks, that there were full parts of Israel under Hamas rule, under terror rule, that there were hundreds of people killed, that there were people kidnapped, and that terrorists were still roaming Israel. And so the fellowship has been in the area of security for since 2006, since the last, the second Lebanon war. And we've built over uh, 3,500 bomb shelters, and we've equipped hospitals, and we've donated bulletproof ambulances and bulletproof emergency vehicles. And so immediately we started to mobilize by calling all of our partners and getting our volunteers on the ground to be able to do whatever they can as soon as we heard a need. And that was the moment that I realized the huge impact of this terror attack that only was discovered by the rest of Israel and the world a day or two later, that suddenly the helpers and the responders became the victims. We tried to call our partner who is the head of welfare in the Shkol region, who we've worked with for a long time. She was kidnapped by Hamas. She was in the Gaza Strip. We called the head of security of a different region who we've been working with for the past 15 years. He was one of the first fatalities. He was killed while trying to protect the people in his town. We called someone from the municipality of a city down south that we've worked with forever, their family answered and said that they were killed. We started looking for the elderly who we care for and bring food for on a regular basis. We pulled up the list of the 17,000 people across Israel, elderly, who receive food every single week from the fellowship. These are Israel's weakest citizens, over eight years old, no family support, Holocaust survivors. We start calling them. The first two people that we called were killed. And so suddenly you realize it's just me that's left. If I don't go in the field right now and help, there is no help there. The municipal social workers, who are usually the first ones to get to the scene of a rocket attack, it's their homes who are hit. The first responders, who are the ones who are protecting their citizens from the terrorists, it's them who were killed. And so the fellowship, as there were still uh, terrorists roaming the city, got food, got water, 
and went around to the most vulnerable people, delivering it to the bomb shelters. We took out all of our reserves of bulletproof vests and distributed it to all the people who were going down south to replace those first responders who were killed. No one else was able to do this. No one else had bulletproof vests. I remember that first day I was watching on primetime TV. They were reporting live from down south, and it was nobody knew what was going on. They're talking to someone who's driving to southern Israel, and all of a sudden, terrorists start shooting at him. And he puts on his bulletproof vest and gets out of his car, lies on the ground. He's in a live firefight on TV, on live TV. And he's wearing a vest that the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews just gave to him. His life is being saved on live TV from Christians around the world. And when uh, after 30 hours, when the people who were in those front kibbutzim, that one in four people were killed or kidnapped from those towns, the ones who were freed after 30 hours, they were freed, but they didn't have shoes they didn't have food. They didn't have water. They didn't eat or drink for 30 hours that they were locked in their bomb shelters. The fellowship was there to give them the food and water, the first ones when they got freed from their bomb shelters. And so it made me realize this sort of responsibility that the fellowship has on the ground in Israel, that when you have partners in every area, when you have volunteers in every area, when you are already meeting the needs of the poverty, suddenly you have to be able to shift during times of war to continue to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the poor under any circumstance. That's an incredible, incredible story. I was thinking, you know, I deal a lot with different mission organizations. Uh, none of them are handing out bulletproof vests. Yeah, you know, and yeah. going into uh, maybe someplace, but uh, not like that. You know, thank you uh, for doing that and for everything that the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews is doing. Thank you for your work. How can we best help? You know, how can if somebody's listening and how can we best help the work that you're doing right now? Pastor Scott, thank you so much. Um, I would say first and foremost, I believe in the power of prayer. So don't stop praying, please, for me, for my family, for the people of Israel. I continue to pray for you as well. We need each other now more than ever. So continue to pray. And if doing something like delivering bomb shelters, we've placed 30 bomb shelters on the northern and southern border in the past two weeks. So placing bomb shelters, delivering food to elderly in their bomb shelters, delivering those bulletproof vests, those are the greatest needs right now, those three things. Mm. And so if your listeners are led to join us in helping to provide those life-saving gifts to the people of Israel, you can go to ifcj.org. That's ifcj.org. And everything we do, I like full transparency. And so you can follow everything what we're doing every single day on the ground in Israel on my social media, Yael Ekstein on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And you can see pictures, videos, real-time updates from the ground of how Christians around the world are saving the lives of Jews in Israel. Do you post regularly on those uh, sites? Very regularly. I really, it's very important to me that people aren't just giving and trusting us with their money, which is a huge honor, but that they actually see the difference they're making, that we are, uh, uh, that they're planting good seed into good ground. And so every day I'm posting updates on new projects of the fellowship that we're developing and implementing every single day. So I think it's a fascinating thing to watch where we're delivering the vests. The hospitals are saying thank you to Christians for enabling them to have the, for example, right now down south. There was four direct hits on a hospital, um, Barzilai Hospital. Thank God just recently the fellowship made the NICU and labor and delivery unit bulletproof and bombproof. We made mm. it completely bombproof. And that saved the lives of 
all the people in there, the NICU babies and the labor and delivery women. And so uh, I got a video from the CEO who was who, who explained we had a direct hit and you saved the lives of these people. Um, so that's on social media. You could just see everything, how the people of Israel are so appreciative. You know, I think that it, the social media aspect of all this is interesting because they're you know, there's a lot of fake stuff on there, and unfortunately, we've done some you know, discussion of how to navigate that. But I also think there's a part of this that is helping Israel because I think we're able to see, and some of it I wish people didn't see because you can't unsee it, the brutality yeah. of what happened. But I do think it would have been hidden from the world but for what is able to come out in social media. Um, and on the positive side, to be able to look at your sites and to see the work that's being done to really care for people, I think also is very positive uh, in yeah. the sense that there is good that can be done here and there is something for us to get involved in. Yes, 100%. Even with the videos, Pastor Scott, Israel, people questioned if it really happened. Right. And Israel was put in a very difficult position because they didn't want to publish the most gruesome videos of mm-hmm. a baby being cut open from the mother's womb, beheaded, and the yeah. mother burned, just one example. They didn't, out of respect for the families, they didn't want to publish those, and out of respect to the viewers, you know, that that they don't want, Israel's, Israel's not barbaric like that. And so people, even with all the video circulating, still questioned it. And so Israel decided to do is to get um, a group of journalists, around 100 journalists, that they would show these authenticated videos and pictures to. And a lot of the journalists left in the middle, left crying. They couldn't even watch it. So, um, yes, social media, you see how important it is in this, that if with the pictures and videos people are questioning if it happened, I can't even imagine without it. Coming up. Our universities are not what they said they are, and uh, will they ever regain the confidence that people had in them before now? I don't know. In the next segment of The Christian Outlook. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show in Southern California. What is happening on the American University campus? And what is happening with our young people? I'm sure many of you have been asking those sorts of questions yourselves. I have been watching pretty closely in recent years, tracking with the state of our culture, but with so much of what we're seeing today, I'll admit, things are worse than I thought. Don Sweeting is the chancellor of Colorado Christian University. He wrote a piece that caught the attention of Gino Geraci, my colleague on 94.7 FM, The Word in Denver. In the second paragraph, you said the war against Israel has provided a window into the ugly side of higher education. And the moment I read it, I couldn't help but thinking, Don, it's not the only window. It seems to be that this event has opened several windows about hatred towards Jews, not just in universities, but around the world. But to your point, what prompted you to write this op-ed? What prompted me is the same reason that prompted us to speak out as a university immediately Mm -hmm. after. And, And in that way, I think we were one of the few 
universities in the United States to do that, that this is not okay, that this, and, and that this is not a minor thing. We knew right away that it was, it was a major, major event that could be actually a turning point in history. Uh, so we, we jumped on it just as, you know, seeing crowds in different parts of the world just shouting, gas the Jews, I'm thinking this is, what, 78 years after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. and it really, we're here again? Um, and I don't want the Church of Jesus Christ to have any part of that. Uh, I want us to be not only praying for what's happening, but speaking up for uh, the Jews. They're the relatives of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and this has no should have no part uh, anywhere among Christ followers. Was it your expectation that the elite academies of academia, higher education, would have a thoughtful response, a morally clear response to what happened? Were you shocked by their silence, or were you actually... I'm stunned to even ask it, that, that it just now becomes clear that higher education is irredeemable, that, that the moral relativity, the cancerous rot is so deep. How do you come back from that kind of deep, cancerous moral ambiguity? Well, I, I was shocked and I wasn't shocked. I mean, you know, I was shocked that you have so many universities and colleges and they're, they're, the administration is saying nothing, right. nothing. I was deeply disturbed that many Christian universities were saying nothing, as if they were waiting to see how this shakes out or if this is going to be a big story or, you know, isn't there the moral equivalence between Hamas and, and Israel, those kind of things. And I, I, was, I was really disturbed by that. But I, in a way, I wasn't shocked by what was happening on secular campuses because they gave up the whole idea of teaching character, moral formation a long time ago, and they were very upfront about it. All we need is to teach subjects, and uh, and so we've raised a generation that they don't have a, a moral compass. They're studying science and technology, and uh, that that's all missing. So I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that uh, our universities are not what they said they are, and. Uh, will they ever regain the confidence that people had in them before now? I don't know. And one of the things that, that, that you know, you, you put your historian hat on in this article, and I loved it, because you begin to talk about some of the deeper issues. And, of course, the deep issue that Alan Bloom brought out that you quote in your article he said in 1987, almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Now, I guess what I want to ask you is, Bloom says that in 1987 about the secular campuses. Is there a case to be made that more and more Christian universities are succumbing to the cultural belief that truth is relative? Well, those are two questions. So let me talk about the first one okay. first. Uh, so uh, the secular humanism that has been the M.O. of colleges and universities for 30, 40, uh, 50 years has not produced what they were hoping it would produce. Liberalism uh, has not produced a generation of students yeah, that have, have, a, have a, a moral sense 
uh, and it's gotten worse because of the ascendant Marxism in the universities. Second question is, are Christian universities sliding into that? Well, yeah, uh, I think I think some are. Uh, Colorado Christian University is not, and we mm -hmm. will fight to make sure it doesn't. I was talking to somebody the other day who was touring a Christian university that had Christian in their middle name, and the, the tour guide said, oh, the, 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 the word Christian can mean whatever you want it to mean here at our university. And that, you know, that's just a signal like slide, big slide. We're we're in trouble. Um, there's much of that. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the shock and you even asked the question, how can we be so shocked about the warning signs? And you go on in the article, you, you know, you ask the million dollar question. How, yeah, how do, do we, we fix what is broken in higher education? Oddly enough, and, and, and Don, you know that there are people who are basically asking a different kind of a question. It is which higher education are we talking about? Because you, 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 you in this article, you, you say something that I find really interesting. You say, in too many places, ideology has become more important than scholarship. But what I'm wondering is, for, the, for those of us who embrace a biblical worldview, that in and of itself is an ideology. Isn't there such a thing as guided and misguided ideology in, in, in our pursuit of scholarship? Well, I think, you know, start with some, some basic things that I, everybody should care about this, Christian or not. Uh, we have to protect students. So right now, Jewish students at universities and college because mm -hmm. they're being threatened. And we need to protect free speech. I'm not against protests. I'm right. not against uh, um, somebody saying, you know, Israel's wrong. I, I totally disagree with them. But the leaders of the university speak with a moral voice. And universities, I believe, uh, have to uh, think through this issue of moral formation. Uh, again, they got to come back to it. They're seeing how, how empty it is. I mean, I sometimes think about this. How did it happen that the most educated nation in the world in the 1930s produced the Third Reich? Right. Right? About that. So Germany was the most educated nation in the world. Every, everybody followed their university model. And yet something was radically missing. And we're seeing the same thing play out today. And I think we, we have historical examples to tell us that mere education is not enough. Just trying to produce competence in, in students is not enough. They need some kind of moral formation. How do you do that? Well, I think we have to question the radical skepticism that's been promoted by the academy that says there's no objective truth and there's no objective moral right and wrong. Uh, we don't live that way. Nobody lives that way. And yet this has been sort of the um, ideology of, of the last 30, 40 years. And, it, and it's coming up short and it's showing. I'd go further and say, uh, specifically, we need to return to the Judeo-Christian tradition, which alone has the ethical and spiritual roots to restore mm -hmm. our moral identity and the foundations of our civilization. And that means teaching the Bible. Coming up, a dark day for the cause of life. Americans love abortion. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. 
Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, RedBalloon.Work. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. This past Tuesday was Election Day in the nation. In the state of Ohio, they were voting on Issue 1, a proposed constitutional amendment that basically legalizes abortion up to the point of birth in Ohio. And 57% of the population voted in support of the measure. Bob France responded, my colleague on AM 1420, the answer in Cleveland. This is a dark day in the state of Ohio and in the United States of America. It's a very, very dark time. And I want people to understand this is not temporary. No, it is going to be ever-present. Americans love abortion. Americans, by and large, love abortions. They care not about the pain and the suffering of the babies. They care not about the lives of the babies. They just want their convenient abortions, and no one is going to tell them otherwise. You need to understand how monumental what happened yesterday was in the state of Ohio, because it wasn't just the state of Ohio. Ohio became the seventh state to aggressively reject even the tiniest little restrictions on abortion. We join California, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, and Vermont. We have for decades continued to argue that abortion should be wiped out and should not be protected at the federal level because there's nothing in the Constitution that says anything about abortion. How can it be a constitutional right without being mentioned in the Constitution? Leave it up to the states, we said. So the American people, who, did I mention, really, really love abortion, said, deal, let's do it in the states. And guess what? Now it is in the Constitution. Not the United States Constitution, but the state constitutions, including of Ohio, Michigan, Vermont, and California. It's enshrined forever into our constitutions now. And not just the Roe version of abortion, 
but the most radical and extreme version of abortion. Anytime, on demand, for any reason, without apology, safe, legal, and rare has gone from extreme, and I guess still legal, but common, frequent, all the time, whenever the living hell we want. That's what has happened. In Montana, they rejected a law that merely would have required life-saving treatment to be given to a baby that was accidentally born alive during an abortion. That lost by six points, 53 to 47. Did I mention? Americans love abortion. It's time for us to recognize this, that, that we're not the majority, those of us who believe in the sanctity and the value of life. We're not the majority. We are a very, very overwhelmed minority. And we are finding this out more and more every single day. And that means it's time to do more than just the old, hey, let's change the hearts and minds of the pro-abortion crowd by telling them the truth about abortion. They know the truth, and they love it. Stacks and stacks of dead baby body parts filling up toxic waste containers and put into dumpsters. Do not make them blink. They don't even look away. They are absolutely fine with it. 57 to 43 was our vote. 14 points. What do we do? Do we surrender and say, okay, they win, dead babies for everybody? Do we continue the same losing path that we have been on? And say, no, we're going to continue to fight. This is wrong. This is a moral outrage. Every life is sacred. They don't care. They love abortion. It speaks to the secularization of our society and our country. We have removed God. We have removed faith. We have removed family. We have removed respect for life. We have done this in this culture, in this time. And now how can we possibly undo it? They have a taste for blood now. Democrats have found there is a taste for abortion in the general populace. It's not particularly close. You want to win? Let's keep putting abortion measures on ballots. Coming up, the core emptiness of the human soul is answered in him. Alistair Begg, when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. We are living in serious times. We have war in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, anti-Semitism in the American homeland like we have not seen before, at least not in my lifetime. And we have an unfettered right to abortion passing in red state Ohio. What should we do? 
What do we need? What we need is the bread of life. Here's Alistair Begg from his daily program, Truth For Life. Jesus is addressing the crowd, and he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we begin at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me uh, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. Well, this is a metaphor, isn't it? I am, he says, the bread of life. Now, I want us to notice, because it is important now and will be, that it is the person who comes to him who does not hunger, not the person who eats him. And it is the person who believes in him who does not thirst, not the person who drinks him. Now, with that said, let's be very clear that what Jesus is saying in this statement, in verse 35, is that the core emptiness of the human soul is answered in him. The essential vacuum in the life of an individual, spiritually, is answered in Christ alone. And as I've been pondering this throughout the week, I've been reminding myself of the privilege that it was uh, to sing, as I've told you before, in the Bible class in Scotland. And uh, we would be arranged in uh, age groups from the small ones to the big ones. I think I was nine when I started, so I was on the front row wearing a kilt, although you don't need that picture in your minds. I, I, I apologize. Uh, but uh, there I was with the rest of the nine-year-olds. And as it went back, if you were 17 or 18, then you would be on the back row. And uh, the fellow who was a businessman uh, who led the Bible class and used to conduct the singing, I've told you about him before. He waved his hand like this. It was completely irrelevant to everything that was going on. But uh, one, of the, one of the choruses, number 79 in the book, as I recall, 79 in the CSSM chorus book, uh, goes like this. I am feeding on the living bread. I am drinking at the fountainhead. And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, will never thirst again. And then it had a refrain, uh, an antiphonal approach. And the question was, what, never thirst again? And the answer was, no, never thirst again. And so the way he had it was that we in the front row, the first couple of rows, we got to ask the question. So it went like this. What? Never thirst again? And then the answer came, no, never thirst again. <laughs> what? Never thirst again? No, never thirst again. And whoso drinketh, Jesus said, shall never ever thirst again. And I bless God for the memory of Norman Walker, a guy who was successful in business but had a love 
for the lives of boys, and who not only taught us how to sing, but taught us about who Jesus was and told us that he was the very answer to the longings even of our nine-year-old or 17-year-old hearts. Now, Jesus is going on to speak about the vast reality and wonder of saving faith. And despite the clarity of his signs, despite the impact of his words, look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Back in chapter 5, he had said to them as well, you search the Scriptures, which is good, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And we've seen this, haven't we? That what Jesus has done in this amazing sign most recently, well, in chapter 5, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, and then here in 6, the uh, amazing provision of food for these thousands of people. But what has it done for these folks? It's merely aroused their curiosity. It stirred their political ambitions. Uh, they immediately said, well, this would be a good person to have as our king. Maybe he will overthrow the Romans. Maybe he will be the one to champion us and help us on our way. So they became curious. They became, if you like, stirred, but there was no evidence of faith at all. Now, that ought to cause us just to say to ourselves, this is truly amazing, isn't it? This, the teacher of this material is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. The signs that he has done are unmistakable, and they are also unavoidable. Nobody who was in the community could ever avoid the fact that the people were going home saying, you will not believe what happened. That man, for 38 years sitting there, has just been walking and jumping all around the temple courts. Surely not. Yes, and you know what? I was part of the group the following day when, along with thousands of others, we were fed. The people said, my, my, that's very interesting. But they didn't believe. Well, why would we be surprised then when entrusted with the privilege of teaching the Bible? People respond to the Bible when you proclaim it to them and say, well, that sounds very interesting, but it's totally irrelevant to me. I don't have any interest in it at all. I can see some people are excited about it. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, there's a mass exodus. <laughs> because Jesus has spoken so clearly, the crowd is not expanding. The crowd is diminishing. It's a strange church growth strategy, isn't it? That the more you preach and the more you teach, the fewer are, are the people that are there. It's not just that people don't come. It is that those who come start to go away. This is a hard saying. I don't like to hear that. I think I must go somewhere else. I'm going to take my baseball bat and go and find another diamond, so to speak. Sort of a metaphor. Coming up... If you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. A few more minutes with Alistair Begg when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. 
AM radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. The days that we are living in have no doubt gotten a lot of people to thinking about the big issues of life, including, I hope and believe, asking questions like, how do I find hope beyond this life? And what must I do to be saved? Let's return for a few more minutes with Alistair Begg. What is the second part of the Father's will? Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You see, this anticipation of a day when we will stand in the presence of God. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the words of the song that we sing in Townend's song, um, uh, a, a, a shout of joy, a cry of anguish as Christ returns and every knee bows low. I will raise him up on the last day. Notice, everyone. This is the will of my Father that everyone. Does that mean everyone? It means everyone. Everyone without exception. Yeah, but what did you just say? Apparently you just said that the Father has a company that he has given to his Son. How can the father of a company that he's given to his son? And then it says everyone. Well, truths that look contradictory to us are not contradictory in the light of heaven. The answer to the paradox is to live with a paradox. What do you need to know? You need to know this, that everyone who looks and believes Bishop Ryle says, commenting on that, here is a comfort for fearful, doubting sinners. The answer in the message of the gospel, a full and free salvation for everyone who looks and believes. Murray, in his masterful use of language, says, it is on the crest of the wave of God's sovereign grace that the free overtures of the gospel break upon the shores of lost humanity. And the reality of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the response of man is not found separated by 15 books and 112 chapters. Look, It sits side by side on the page. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. That concludes our program today. You can get Alistair's full message at truthforlife.org. Look for The Bread of Life Part 2. If you've enjoyed our program, mention it to a friend. Find this episode at ChristianOutlook.com 
While you're there, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. So she ran away in a sleep.